Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm I'm well, David. I, I did something kind of funny before we started here. I uh I took the Harrower Erickson Rorschach test on the internet. Oh, and they give you, of course, a lot of disclaimers that this test was, you know, was always a little bit uh, uh, dubious. And uh, now it's just an historical curiosity. But uh, so you look at 10 different Rorschach images. And I'm pleased to report that I scored two out of 10, which means two of my answers do correspond with people who are, in theory, psychologically disturbed. But I haven't cracked that key threshold of four to six, which uh, was their standard for people who are truly cognitively disturbed. Give so, it time, sir. Give it time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite jokes about uh, the Rorschach test, I saw this in a tweet, and the tweet goes, I, I don't think these Rorschach tests work. I just keep seeing my parents having sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I love psychology jokes. They just, they're so funny. They they're so good. true. They're they so true. How's things in Las Vegas? Good? Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Same here. Great time of year here. Absolutely brilliant. Well, Chris... We had a great episode last time. I'm sure this one will be another good one. What are we going to talk about today? Okay, yeah, we did have a really strong episode, and thank you for uh, to all the people who wrote in about it. That's uh, really pleasing to hear. That seemed to really strike a chord. Well, I thought that having mentioned uh, Rupert Sheldrake a couple of times, but certainly in, in the last episode, that we might uh, focus uh, fairly squarely uh, on him. He is a, a very uh, much a contemporary scientist. Uh, in my view, he is the best professional scientist as writer that we've seen uh, since St uh, Stephen Jay Gould and uh, the great Lewis Thomas, who's a, a scientist writer uh, who's no longer with us, but whose work still is and who I teach uh, very regularly. Um, I think people may have have some familiarity with Rupert Sheldrake, uh, but I thought I would just do a, a quick recap so that we're, we're kind of all uh, on that famous same page. Uh, his three most important works, in my view, he's published quite a lot. Uh, he gives quite a lot of lectures. You'll find an enormous amount of material uh, available on YouTube and the like. He speaks often at... Uh, places like the Esalen Institute and uh, the Institute for Noetic Sciences in San Francisco. But his three key works are his first book called The New Science of Life, which was greeted with absolute outrage by both the formal uh, scholarly scientific publications and the mainstream popular magazines such as uh, Science and uh, the Scientific American. Uh, it was called, in fact, uh, a, a genuine book for burning, which I think is a great compliment. Um, then The Presence of the Past was kind of the sequel to that and a much more developed, uh, it's a much longer and uh, bigger and deeper book. Um, and then more recently, The Science Delusion. And I think you're going to tell us a little bit about 
what the science delusion is about and how that ties in with our concerns about Fortrian joyous skepticism and also the, uh, the demons of scientism and uh, the archdemon of pedantry, uh, Richard Dawkins. Um, mm -hmm. But to get to what has made um, Sheldrake's reputation and what he has in fact staked his intellectual reputation on is a theory that he calls formative causation or morphic resonance. Um, and he studied biology, particularly botany and the morphology of plants at Cambridge, uh, did research in India. Uh, he also got a PhD in philosophy from Harvard. So he brings an enormous amount of, of knowledge to, to what he's, he's talking about. But to put morphic resonance into context as simply as possible, he says, it's a process whereby self-organizing systems inherit a memory from previous similar systems. In its most general formulation, morphic resonance means that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. And here I would just like to interject a thought of my own to contrast law versus habit. We tend to think of law as something grand and formal and very concrete. I'd like to point out that that may not be the way to think about it. Habit comes from the Latin habire and means to consist of. So it's a very substantive word. It's very physical. It's very tangible. Whereas law, as we know, is, is inherently a human social and cultural construct. Habit, therefore, is in fact the stronger natural argument, whereas law is by definition metaphor. Mm -hmm. To continue with Sheldrake's explanation, the hypothesis of morphic resonance also leads to a radically new interpretation of memory storage in the brain and of biological inheritance. It is a direct challenge to the strict interpretation of evolution, of biological transmission, of reproduction being purely in terms of genetic information being passed along in a hardwired cellular way. He's looking at this very differently. And if people need a kind of visual clue to this, what he is proposing that is that all that we consider to be organic matter is informed, shaped, and insofar as it is determined, it is influenced by a kind of organic field, which is like unto the other field of physics, like electromagnetism. Mm -hmm. Now, we may not be able to, we may not currently understand it, as well as electromagnetism, we may not be able to measure it in the same way, but it wasn't so very long ago that electromagnetism was quite a mysterious uh, supernatural uh, phenomenon. And I'll just interject for just a minute. I, I would argue it still is in a lot of ways. Well, I, it, it really is. I mean, I, I think in, in practical terms, for most people, it absolutely is. And, and to tie back into our you know, support for Fort, you know, Fort would challenge us to not say that we know things in this collective we as in society or culture 
or the priest caste of scientists who we choose to believe because we're too lazy to, to uh, investigate anything on our own, I think electromagnetism is absolutely mysterious for uh, that uh, you know, proverbial person in the street. Mm-hmm. But when we look at, uh, you know, here, here was Sheldrake putting forward this idea in beginning in the 1980s and, and articulating it in ever more refined ways ever since. But he was greeted as a heretic, you know. The, the new science was called a book for burning. And people didn't really acknowledge uh, that this idea did not come out of, of nowhere at all. Uh, it had some very, very strong reference points. And I'd like to just pick on three to help people understand a little bit more. Sheldrake's first concern was to connect with Jung's idea of the collective unconscious, which, in my experience, everyone I consider to be an interesting person has an intuitive sympathy for that idea. Uh, most artists, I, I've never really met anyone who, who questions that, at least on a metaphorical level. It, it just seems to make an enormous amount of sense. And, and let's remember that Jung was not alone in that idea himself, that there were other anthropologists, mythographers, uh, scholars of, of legend and religion, uh, Joseph Campbell, Eliade, uh, Bruno Bettelheim talking about fairy tales, they could not escape the fact that there were motifs in terms of legend, myth, and religious ideas that, that did repeat on a world culture scale. They were mm-hmm. common to incredibly diverse groups of people around the planet. Well, so Sheldrake was trying to put that idea into a more physical, tangible, concrete framework. The second key influence was Henri Bergson, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, who said, memory is the intersection of mind and matter. Riffing on Gilbert Ryles, the, the British philosopher's idea of the ghost in the machine, his take on, on the, you know, the classic problem of Cartesian dualism, mm-hmm. the famous mind-body problem, which, which I like to think of as the mind-body opportunity. I mean, whoever thinks of, you know, I think the mind-body yeah, opportunity like <laughs> is a much better way to think of it. Um, but Bergson also said uh, a couple of things that really hit Sheldrake. He said, the brain is part of the material world, the material world is not part of the brain. If we think of that in terms of math sets, in other words, the brain is part of the set of the world, but it doesn't work the other way. And, and that were, there was a problem in his view that way. But then this is the line that really hit home for him. The evolution, this is Bergson again, the evolution of the living being, like that of an embryo, implies a continual recording of duration, a persistence of the past in the present, and so at least an appearance of organic memory. I don't know, maybe people hearing that will be reminded of uh, Salvador Dali's famous painting, The Persistence of of Memory. Um, But we see this in very, very practical terms. And I was thinking of uh, your and Rios's, you know, new parent situation of, you know, the famous saying, which anyone who studied biology knows, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. 
mm-hmm. you know? And now mm-hmm. with the, the miracle of ultrasound, we can watch that happening. We can watch a developing fetus go through, physically go through past evolutionary stages. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing metaphorical about that, you know? Uh, right. People like right. Wilhelm Reich were, were right on this. They said, look, you know, this isn't just metaphor. This is very physical and, and real. Um, finally, the other thing that um, tying in with uh, our arch enemies of Dawkins and Dennett, who, who <laughs> consider themselves as Darwin's greyhounds, which I think is kind of a degrading way to think of oneself. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I like that we have bad guys on this show. Well, we definitely do, and we're going to keep throwing <laughs> stones at them, too. People should be aware that Darwin, at a crucial moment in the Voyage of the Beagle uh, journey and his book, um, which, as I mentioned before, was an enormous uh, bestseller of, of the 19th century, at a crucial moment in the Galapagos Islands, where he is studying bird life, he puts forward a Bergsonian, Sheldrakean idea in exactly the same terms. And no hardcore Darwinian evolutionary biologist can get around that moment of speculation. Yes, he was a lot younger than, you know, Origin of Species, but he had that idea, and it's a distinctly Lamarckian, open-ended idea that is... It's just very, very interesting to to read in Darwin. Okay, the third tier in Sheldrake's program was the great Lewis Thomas, who was a uh, a physician, neurologist, uh, a linguist, uh, someone of many, many interests. But he was he wrote beautifully about biology and life. And he was very concerned with the problem, which is very close to where Sheldrake started as a scientist, the problem of morphology, where form comes from, the acorn versus white oak problem. I mean, is a giant white oak really hiding inside the acorn? That, that sounds very mysterious to me, and it's puzzled other people too. But Thomas uh, was, very, was a, a colleague of... Uh, E.O. Wilson, the entomologist, and was very interested oftentimes in insects and had a lot to to say on what the field that we now know as swarm intelligence of decentralized uh, intelligence forms and communal collaborative thinking. Listen to this. This is from his beautiful book, The Lives of a Cell, which is, even if people aren't interested in this, this is uh, the way to write clear prose. Uh, in a nonfiction sense. It's, it's just simply, there's short uh, anecdotal chapters on, on a range of subjects, and, and it's just beautifully clear, like water you can hold in your hand. Here's what he says about termites. Termites are even more extraordinary in the way they seem to accumulate intelligence as they gather together. Two or three termites in a chamber will begin to pick up pellets and move them from place to place. But nothing comes of it. Nothing is built. As more join in, however, 
they seem to reach a critical mass, a quorum, and the thinking begins. I think that's just an absolutely beautiful um, expansion of this idea of memory, not only accumulating in time, and accumulating is a very strange thing because it just sounds like it's piling up, whereas probably the better way to think about it is it's being enriched and deepened, modified, and it's evolving, that memory is alive. But there's yeah. also this sense of collaboration and communal knowledge, which mm -hmm. is a great Novalis idea. Novalis is one of my personal heroes, talks about communities of knowledge and talks about our, our, our individual consciousness as a community of knowledge. Uh, so we are a community unto ourselves. So all of these three key cornerstones, if you like, were the basis of Sheldrake's uh, idea about morphic resonance, an organic field that to many people sounds metaphysical. And, you know, and we forget that metaphysical just means physics we don't understand. You know, correct. It doesn't mean super. It doesn't mean supernatural and paranormal. Those are not fair synonyms for it. Um, but he really had a very down to earth. What's more down to earth than an acorn or a termite? You know, mm -hmm. he had a very down to earth point of view on this, and and yet was greeted, you know, as this uh, Fortrian uh, heretic. Um, yeah. So I thought that we might then get to your, some of your thoughts on Sheldrake as heretic, but to also look it at if memory is inherent in the concept of consciousness and evolutionary growth, maybe that would be a good place to start. And I know that you have some interesting ideas about memory, particularly you know with people like uh, Giordano Bruno, mm -hmm. um, who's mm -hmm. someone who's also one of my heroes as well. So over to you. Great. There's a lot of great stuff in there. The first thing that comes to mind was your brief bit that Thomas wrote there about termites. Um, the idea of a few termites gathering and not doing a whole lot, and then the more termites gather, they reach a critical mass where they begin to build things. Doesn't that sound to you like human memory? Because very few people have memories before the age of, say, three or four. That's when memory really seems to form. And that's the first thing that came to my mind when you were reading that passage, is that in a way, humans kind of go through that. There's, we're going to talk a lot about the non-locality of memory and how memory isn't necessarily contained within you know, the cells or the neurons of your brain. So hypothetically, a morphic field would affect an infant just as much as an adult. But perhaps the termite metaphor is the missing link there, that enough termites have to show up, so to speak, in order to start making memory. I just wanted to see if you had thoughts on that. Well, I do. You know, I think uh, that's a very interesting um, riff and take out of that, because I think it reinforces one of my deep ideas that, uh, I mean, Thomas does it at several points say there's no such thing as an individual creature of any kind. And I, I firmly believe that. I think that we, we carry within us all something that's difficult to describe beyond the word culture. Uh, it's more than just language. It, it's a framework of meaning. It's yeah. a template for values, for perspectives, 
for it's it, it gives us a syntax and a grammar for processing information that is so deep we 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 struggle for the rest of our grown lives in accessing that mechanism to make any changes to our operating system we we really have a problem you know in computer terms upgrading our, our operating system because we're not really sure how to access it. It's so, so deep. Right. right. But I wonder, you know, with the, this idea, because I think it is true that even people who have tremendous memories and who claim to to have memories from, from extremely early childhood, and I am one of those people, I still absolutely agree that there is a cloud or mist. That's how I imagined it. A mist that was around me that kind of cleared away um, around three, age three, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that has to do with the the social interaction. You know, the physicality of being handled and fondled and loved. Those are you the know? metaphorical termites showing up. Exactly. We need that that socialized collaboration. And we know that, that children who don't get this, and we know that some of the higher animals that were, you know, that are, I hate that term higher, but you know what I mean, animals closer to us mm-hmm. that, we can, that we can play and work with and so therefore seem more like us and, and have, we have a shared understanding. We know that if, if creatures in that, in that category are deprived of a certain degree of socialization, of welcome, uh, physical welcome, physical love, physical connection, reinforcement of the physical boundaries of their bodies and their voices. We know that 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 deficit can never be recovered from later in life. It just there's a, there's there's psychological damage and indeed a kind of psychosomatic damage that is just simply. Uh, cannot be transcended. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be something to what you're saying there about um, memory, the capacity, and and if we think of it, to use my idea of grammar, a grammar, an internalized sense of grammar, and I don't mean grammar in a language sense or you know past participles and gerund phrases. I mean it in a much deeper sense. Um, in order for that to get implanted and to be systematized and activated, it needs this reinforcement from the environment, mm. from family, from friends, from... And, and we also know that, that, you know, children who are exposed to people beyond, say, just a mother, you know, that, that have a bit more family or who have, you know, friends and, and older siblings, we know that their socialization patterns change that are different than the single child uh, growing up in, in more isolation. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example of where memory and in the sense of, of grammar that I'm talking about is, is neither uh, hardwired in the brain necessarily. Uh, and, and we're going to talk about the problems of locating memory in a physical sense in the brain. Uh, but it's, it, it may not be exactly in some sort of cloud or field sense exactly or the field may be much more physical uh, and tangible and socialized than say the electromagnetic field is Mm -hmm. does that make sense it makes total sense and that brings us right back to sheldrake now 
I got very excited when you said that you wanted to talk about Sheldrake. We've mentioned him a few times on the show before, but he's one of my favorite thinkers. I actually just uh, got started on his son's new book, his son Merlin Sheldrake. It's a book about mushrooms. It seems very interesting. <laughs> but I, um, I have a lot of time for his sort of strange, mystical, almost alchemical understanding of the world. And I have a lot of time for him as a heretic, because I think that we're living in a time now where if you're not valuing the people who everybody wants to shut up, then in my opinion, you're, you're sort of, you're just sort of along for the ride. You're not necessarily engaging with these ideas in a way that to my mind is truly scientific. So in 2013, Sheldrake had an absolutely notorious Ted talk called the science delusion. And it caused such firestorm of criticism that Chris Anderson, the CEO of, of TED International, pulled the talk from their website. But since we live in an age where anybody can record anything they want, the video is now freely available to anybody who wants to watch it on YouTube. It was recorded at TED Whitechapel. And the video, YouTube has a system where you can thumbs up or thumbs down the video. The video currently has 3 million views with 56,000 thumbs up and 10,000 thumbs down, which is to see something wow. with 10,000 thumbs down is extremely unique. You just don't see that. So this is a wow. highly contentious video. People have a lot of problems with this. And Sheldrake... That's so interesting. Ahead. I didn't yeah. know that, that, that there was that much popular... Uh, struggle with it. Oh yeah. my. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's something that we can definitely get into. I'll make a note of that to talk about that either in this episode or perhaps the next one. At the beginning of the episode, sorry, at the beginning of the talk, rather, Sheldrake outlines the 10 dogmas of modern science. And these are the dogmas that you cannot break or you'll get into big trouble. Sheldrake, of course, breaks all 10 of them, and we see what happens to him. So the first one is that nature is mechanical. There's a great clockmaker. We're all machines. We're automatons that are simply products of genetic information being passed down. And we're a lot like robots that go through our daily tasks um, with very little free will, very little in the way of like any, any emotion that we have is really just a sort of complicated confluence of different chemicals that, that we're ingesting or being exposed to at any given time. Okay, just I just want to insert there for 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 our audience's benefit. If people don't, I mean that is the core idea of of the nineteenth century, heavily influenced, obviously, by the rise of of, of the age of industrialism, and it, started it with really, it it yes, it 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 goes back to the Enlightenment. It has a long history, but it really really reached a, a kind of pinnacle of unexamined acceptance. Uh, in the 19th century. And then it got an enormous uh, boost from behaviorism, which uh, is, is as mechanistic as any you know, paradigm could be. Uh, it just was a little bit sneakier, and, but it, it permeated 
the social sciences. It, 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 it completely took over psychology. And people may remember B.F. Skinner and the Skinner box and the idea of tropisms that were all just simply responding to an environment. Uh, which, of course, doesn't explain why people uh, look in the mirror and, you know, if they're very thin, they see someone very fat. You mm -hmm. know, it doesn't, it doesn't explain why people don't respond to the environment in a logical, rational way. And why don't we all respond the same way? So mm -hmm. it's a really devilish uh, theory. And, of course, our, our good enemy, Richard Dawkins, is, is the ultimate... Uh, in, in clockwork thinking, his first book that really, you know, broke him into the public arena was The Blind Watchmaker. And, mm -hmm. and his, his, his metaphor for us is exactly robots. We're just mm -hmm. lumbering robots, to use his, one of his direct phrases. So, okay, that's number one. Okay, let's, let's hear more. Well, and also, just as a quick digression, number one, I find the idea that we're lumbering robots to be um, just a very offensive idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put that out there. Um, and I'm not sure if we've talked about this on the show. Have we talked about Descartes' automaton before? Not sure I don't know did. if we've gotten fully into that because Descartes is, is sort of, I guess you could say, one of our uh, ancestral enemies. Yeah, he is an ancestral enemy. So if we haven't gotten, if we have gotten into this before, I'll make this very brief so we can move on to the second one. But Descartes, who is sort of the the great-grandfather of all this mechanistic thinking, um, had a young daughter who unfortunately passed away at a very young age. And Descartes built a lifelike automaton version of his daughter that he carried with him everywhere that apparently could blink and could also talk. And it freaked the hell out of people who could see it. So this is the guy who made who set the groundwork for the kind of science that we're seeing today. Just to kind of put that in perspective. And of course, no psychology was, was active there. No, <laughs> no spiritual longing, no, right. no private grief. You right. know, I mean, that, that sounds like a completely mechanistic, logical, pure, rational, right angle thinking to me. I mean, reconstruct your daughter as, as you know, as a robot. I mean, I get that, you know. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So number two is that it follows from number one. It is that matter is unconscious, right? Consciousness is a function of our brains. It's not something that's in animals, plants, planets, um, the atmosphere. It's, it ha consciousness is very limited to a kind of unintentional sort of accidental function of our brain. Now, number three, the laws of nature are fixed. Because okay. they're laws. Because they're laws. Number four, the total amount of matter and energy is always the same. This is, a, this is a classic law of thermodynamics, right? It is indeed. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Sheldrake has a little bit of a problem with that because he brings up a very great point. This is all very true. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed, except for that one instance of the Big Bang where everything was created out of nothing. Right. <laughs> or as he says, give us one miracle and, uh, you know. And we'll explain the rest. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Number five, nature is purposeless. There is no teleology to nature's function. It doesn't want anything. It's just propagating itself over and over again. Again, in a kind, like, kind of like a computer program or an algorithm that's built to 
completely keep compounding on itself. And, and you know where that particular angle comes from? That was a way to try to deal with the concept of evolution in the Darwinian sense, because there was concern about the idea of progress, that we had suddenly turned the great chain of being, which was a, a very old idea going back to medieval Christendom, but uh, certainly a, a, it was very alive to air through the 19th century. But it starts with the idea of God and works down through this hierarchy of angels and then gets to humanity and then we work down through monkeys and dogs and finally we get to termites, you know? Whereas Lamarck begins the turnaround and flips that over and that unfortunately humans become at the top of the ladder, you know? The termites have somehow worked their way up to being yeah. humans. And we get a weird sense of progress that for a lot of, you know, so-called secular uh, scientists, the hard-nosed folks, uh, they thought that was beginning to sound a little bit religious and they wanted to really kind of somehow deal with that. Mm -hmm. So that's where that <laughs> idea, you know, it like progress is cool if it's about, you know, technology and us, you know, learning more. Space. Yeah, but it's not so cool on this if it makes us think about religion and spirituality and, you know, enlightenment in a deeper way. No, mm -hmm. that's not so good. Mm -hmm. We don't, mm -hmm. we're not, we're not down with that. No. So, okay. Okay. Cool. Excellent. So number six, biological heredity is material, meaning it's everything is passed down genetically. It's based the, the idea that there could be any kind of field that influences genetic development is taboo. We can't talk about that. And I believe Lynn Margulis pretty much blew the lid off of this one. Don't you think? I mean, the idea of symbiosis sort of puts the lie to this particular dogma. Well, this is exactly, you know, what I was saying about Darwin's uh, speculation, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the Galapagos Islands, that, that he really was not as, as fixed on this idea that, that only genetic information is transferred in a physical sense through the reproductive process. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's what we're really talking about, and that's what, where, where someone like Dawkins draws the line he you know he would say there's only genes and yet you know he made a real effort in the blind watchmaker to talk about memes he was kind of the inventor of the idea of meme the meme of memes mm -hmm. uh, as a kind of conceptual analog of the physical gene uh, and for a while, you know, memetics, the, the, the pseudoscience, or not pseudoscience, the, the discipline that, that tried to build itself around that idea was really running hot. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, was, I was reading everything I could find in the field. I was thinking this might be a good, you know, angle for graduate study. And what happened was that, that the, the, there was no taxonomy, no way of, mm. of structuring mm -hmm. memes in a, in a sense of depth and content in any kind of hierarchy to understand them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it, it just sounded like a cool metaphor, but not the basis for, you know, a, a really strong and vigorous social science. But but mm -hmm. even Dawkins w was w you know was was thinking in that that way. So the idea that genes alone, as in you know effectively DNA, 
you know, is the determining factor. I mean, that just doesn't really hold up. There's not that much difference between human DNA and a banana. No. You know, no. really. Extremely um, close. Yep. So it, it, it's very, that, that's a very, very dubious uh, argument. And again, I mean, I'm just surprised that there were 10,000 uh, queries or, or disagreements uh, with, with Sheldrake on this. But, but carry on, because I think we're beginning to see a pattern forming. I like the last four the best, and they're all sort of interrelated. But I'm going to read number seven and then have a slight digression. So number seven is that memories are stored in your brain. And as soon as I th started thinking about that, I thought about this great book that I read, maybe it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, by the botanist Monica Gagliano, uh, who has been doing tons of studies with different plants. Uh, her book is called Thus, Thus Spoke the Plant. And she talks about all these experiments that she did, particularly with the uh, Mimosa pudica, which is a what they call the, what is it? I think it's called the shy plant. And if you touch its uh, sort of leaves, it will fold up and hide. So she did these fascinating um, series of experiments where she would rig these plants up to this kind of uh, uh, system where they were made to fall about 60 feet, right? Which caused them to cover up. And then over time, as she... Uh, sort of exposed these 56 plants to this thing over and over again, they eventually got used to it and thought, okay, this is okay. That's weird enough to begin with. But the experiment that she did that I thought was very strange was she took a particular pudica plant and every single day she would go into her laboratory and drop a single droplet of water on the plant, which would cause it to close up. Over the course of about three months, eventually the plant began to allow her to drop this water on it without closing up. Now, she left the plant alone for two years, and over those two years, different researchers would come in and attempt to drop a bit of water, and the plant closed up. When Gagliano came back and dropped water on the plant, it did not close up. So over the course of two years, this plant somehow remembered her. How does that work? Plants don't have brains. Where were those memories stored? How does it know? These are all what? very fascinating questions, I think. How do we even characterize memory, you know, from a human perspective? How do we characterize memory in something so different, genuinely different to us as a plant? I mean, we can think about a dog remembering a path up in the mountains that we went on, you know, five years ago. There's at least a framework for understanding that, and there's possibly things like scent. I mean, we, we just don't know enough really even about how dogs, which we're you know, so close to in so many ways, spiritually, physically, and, and communally. Um, but it, it's very difficult to, to formulate, I think, a, a clear idea of what plant memory would be like. And, you know, the other thing which, I, which is very interesting, tying back to, you know, the notion of behaviorism, and the behaviorists wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to say, basically, we're, we're mechanical and we're behaving in response to the environment. But yet, they were, you know, the ultimate believers in conditioning. 
you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, Pavlov's dog, you know, I mean, B.F. Skinner, the Skinner book, we, that, that, can, that behavior could be modified, which if you think about it, well, how can that, re, you know, in a, in a machine sense, we have to really reprogram a machine. And that's a fairly new idea. You know, that's not a 19th century industrial idea. They would actually retool the machine entirely or, or build a new machine. You know, it wouldn't be a, the, the idea of one machine evolving and learning new things. So we've got some real, some real mysteries to unravel there. But I, I think the idea of let's focus on where the memory is, because I think that was your key question, not just what kind of memory or how we characterize it, but, but where does that memory reside? Where is it? Where is it? Where you brought this up in one of our off-mic conversations, but when you put a photo on the cloud, where is it? Is it in a server somewhere overseas? Maybe kind of talking out of school here because we're not cloud technicians. But my understanding is that the photos kind of exist and don't exist at the same time, much like memories exist and don't exist. Um, there, it's a kind of it's a non-locality of memory that I think is very tough to wrap our heads around. I think that's the only way to think of it in very quantum terms, where the memory both exists and doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it, I, I'm doing a lot of work on memory for my, my textbook, which, although the, the nominal subject has to do with, with creative writing, it really has to do with strengthening the mind and, and what we think we mean when we, we try to talk about things like the imagination, which is a very, very peculiar concept, mm-hmm. probably as peculiar as memory. And one of the, um, I mean, uh, the, the idea of memory is so strange because I, I really believe it is fair to say that we know no more and perhaps less about memory than we did 2,000 years ago, going back to the ancient Egyptians, then through the Pythagoreans, through, uh, I mean, for everything that Aristotle got wrong, he did have some good ideas on a few fronts. Um, I think the poetics and I think some of the logic is good, but two books on the soul and memory and reminiscence have as much relevance today as an enormous amount of cognitive science coming out of places like Tufts University and, and Stanford. Um, and to me, that suggests, you know, there's the old saying that, that if you continually get no breakthrough with a question, it may be because you're asking either the wrong question or you're working from a deficient paradigm. And yeah. I, I think we have to just accept the possibility of that non-locality of memory. Um, yeah, and... An interesting thing, this might not go anywhere, but I feel I feel compelled to share this, is that since I've quit social media, I've been having these extremely vivid dreams where normally my dreams take place in, you know, the kind of dream world and there are landscapes that I can go back to. But since I have uh, stopped sort of ingesting so much internet content, I've been having these incredibly vivid dreams that are just, you know, visual for visual feeling for feeling recreations of actual events in my life right like memory is becoming it's coming back with a vengeance almost as if it's been damned for the past you know 10 years and i mean that with two m's and also mn right 
Um, and now that now that I've sort of opened that dam, um, they're they're coming through so powerfully that they're even taking advantage of my sleep state. So that's sorry about that's might be. No, a I think moment. that's very interesting, and I, I I can really relate to that. I I think that I think there's some good research on this that's emerging that the less or or the more filters and limitations we put on. Uh, our access to particularly social media, uh, more so than, say, just doing research online. Uh, so it's not the internet per se, but it is particularly social media. We, we, there is some really good data emerging. Uh, Douglas Rushkoff and, and Nicholas Carr, who was a classmate of mine in college, I, I didn't know him then, uh, they've done quite a bit of work on, on the effect of, of social media in terms of, of scrambling. Uh, neural circuitry and and really creating forms of of confusion within the mind. Um, so naturally, stepping away from that, I, I think, would be an enormous help. And that makes me think of um, you know Luria was was a great neurologist writer. Uh, he wrote you know some some of the most interesting work on on the anatomy of the brain, and he was trying to work with that old paradigm of the brain basically being the organ for which the mind is a metaphor, you know, that the mind is some sort of epiphenomenon, you know. Um, it, it's our way of linguistically dealing with functions in the brain that we can't really understand any other way. But he wrote an interesting book about a man with an amazing memory called The Mnemonicist. And uh, it, it is absolutely bizarre because the guy's way of remembering things is so complicated that you could never ever teach it. It is just so eccentric and personal and completely bizarre, really. Um, it, it doesn't make any systematic cultural sense whatsoever. Whereas I think it might be time to, to talk about that wonderful defrocked Dominican uh, who was burned alive in the field of flowers in Rome. Yep. Yep. Um, and we're, we're talking about Giordano Bruno. And um, uh, David and I are both enormous uh, admirers of, of one of his great historians, Dame Frances Yates, who's, who's probably just one of the most capable uh, historical writers about the rise of science. Uh, the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, Bruno. Mm -hmm. yep. um, she just did some wonderful, wonderful history and philosophy of science writing. But um, Bruno's memory cathedrals and his memory sigils, uh, which are kind of concentric circle uh, symbolizations based on a, 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 a kind of design program that, that he took off from Raymond Lowell, who's another uh, great... Uh, proto-scientist, um, before we really were using that word, more as much a magician as scientist. Um, and Lull also uh, created an artificial human, a robot, um, kind of a, an ongoing uh, trick. Theme there, yes. Yeah. Um, but what Bruno seemed to um, be committed to, whether this was in intricate two dimensions or, or three-dimensionality, uh, he was very uh, focused on the spatialization of memory. 
Um, what, what do you think about that? Because that seems to me to make an enormous amount of physical concrete sense in a way that the, the individual study that Luria was involved with, that guy's program was just too eccentric to be followed by anyone. You know, he could barely explain it, you know? Right. Well, it was brilliant because by developing a memory palace with different rooms to where you can go and sort of read uh, books and things that you have stored in there, to my mind, what that does is it's, um, it's Schrodinger opening up the box and seeing the cat inside, right? So it's, nice. it's, nice. Colla- it's collapsed. Like Basically, a memory palace is collapsing non-locality into, into a place. That's that a lovely thought. Yes. Um, you know, um, in his book, uh, I don't speak Latin, so you'll have to forgive me, but uh, De Umbris Idearum and Ars Memoriae, which translates... Book of Shadows, yeah. Yeah, Book of Shadows, Shadows of Ideas, Book of Shadows, those kind of things, right? Um, he talks uh, extensively about his process for, you know, it's rumored that when he was burned that he had a second uh, so- sort of more occult book that he had memorized, right, that he never wrote down. It was all in his head that we'll never get. Um, but he talks extensively about this memory palace, and the he's also big on mnemonic devices. So he would uh, sort of take mnemonics and also um, sort of alchemical uh, hermeticism, basically. He was a hermetist, as far as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of build these palaces where, you know, you could you would be physically, in an imaginal sense, walking around like you're in a library. And you would be, essentially be able to go to certain rooms with certain, a certain color of drapes, and those drapes would remind you of a mnemonic de- device that was able to contain an entire text, right? And so every word, it's also, it's, you know, we're making it sound complicated, but it's not exactly, because every word would sort of be represented by a symbol, right? So you would think something to the effect of broom, window, computer whatever and like and those mnemonic associations would bring the text back to you right again all these uh non-locality disruptors right or funnels basically um but i just i thought he was just such a fascinating character you know he was bruno was essentially burned at the stake as a heretic and i think that this is just so human and so true it wasn't necessarily because of his ideas but because he was an asshole. He was smarter than everybody. He'd always been smarter than everybody his whole life. He had uh, this system worked out to where he could go into any room and be the cleverest guy in the room. And he just consistently overstepped his boundaries. He was kind of a curmudgeon, right? And how it was back in, in these days, in the 16th century, was that you were allowed to be an occultist and a magician, as long as you kept quiet about it, as long as you didn't rock the boat too much, right? And Bruno was just a habitual line stepper. Well, he, you know, I think the fact that he'd been defrocked and wasn't, didn't have the safety of a monastery and, and was seeking to be a public European figure, um, and, you know, anyone who had had any exposure to the Jesuits, I mean, talk about people who are, you know, contrary, you know, just looking for for trouble. Um, you know, that's what he was looking for. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think, you know, one of the, uh, 
some of his uh, the designs, what what I've been calling sigils, are quite beautiful, and I, I think they'd if you if you're going to get another tattoo, David, I think you might look at those. They're really cool. They are. Um, but the idea of of this making memory physical and uh, locational in a palace or cathedral sense, we're talking about a kind of model that one could imaginatively walk through it sort of makes me think of Borges in the Garden of the Forking Paths and his yep. obsession with the labyrinth as a symbol and the library and and the the library as labyrinth and and vice versa but um Borges you know was the, a Bruno fan like he was he was in there totally oh yeah. you know perfect but do you know where like Bruno's I I where and this is maybe a legendary story, but um, it, it's the story of the deadly banquet of uh, Simonides of, of Seos, who um, was at this uh, banquet and uh, was asked to recite a poem uh, and, and to be paid for it. And he did. And, and uh, the host refused payment. And um, Simonides looked to the twin star, you know, gods of Castor and Pollux uh, for support. And supposedly, at exactly that moment, a knock came on the door, and there were two men who were asking for him. And he rose from the table and went outside, and there weren't any men there. But while he was outside, the roof collapsed and killed everybody at the banquet. And there was a question of, well, they were actually so mangled because the roof was, was very, very heavy and the damage was, was intense that the bodies couldn't, you know, actually be identified. Uh, but Simonides was able to remember them by where they were seated. So we get a, a, an extremely forensic uh, notion of, of a very, very physicalized memory of, mm. of being able to identify bodies by, by virtue of the seating arrangement. Yeah. So, I mean, nothing could be more uh, hardwired in that sense than that. So, in a weird way, although we're talking about memory in a kind of non-localized cloud field sort of way, it mysteriously oscillates back to a very, very tangible, concrete meat bone and blood level doesn't it i mean it's yeah and doesn't it it's remind mysterious you, it's mysterious but doesn't it remind you of the aboriginal peoples of australia and and the song lines totally you know? being able to sort of it, it works both ways where they're able to sing a song or tell a story as they move through a landscape and you know they're notorious for being able to find places they've never been based on song but it's this idea that boundaries you know there's this big myth that you know before modern western people there was no concept of borders which could not be further from the truth um people were custodians of certain pieces of land and unless you did the proper rituals and and talked to the right people you didn't necessarily you weren't necessarily mobile between different uh pieces of land but they use the landscape, uh, they talk to it, and they moved through it in that way, and that's how they remembered. And that's how their kind of stored cultural history uh, was continuously propagating and flourishing. I, I've always been amazed 
that there is, is well, I guess, a particularly Western idea that indigenous people uh, were not hyper-conscious of boundaries because I think that, that that is the definition or the starting definition of an indigenous mindset is, is, is just absolute hyper-clarity about boundaries in, 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 a, in a range of senses. You know, not that, that boundaries in the sense of, of ownership or don't go over that boundary, but lines of demarcation, lines of differentiation, um, I mean, the Solomon Islanders, that, that's a really, you know, their whole thing is, you know, we do not move in the jungle. Mm -hmm. They don't like that in the that, that preposition. You know, they move with the jungle. With, or I, I they move the jungle. You know, it's, yep. and it, I think it would be very difficult to, to think of any indigenous people, whether we're talking about Amazonia, North America, Oceania, Africa, I mean, Boundaries are absolutely vital. And in, in, in places like Australia, I mean, here, here's a good question for people. Uh, you know, in a map and compass navigation sense, is it easier to navigate in a dense jungle or in the desert? I mean... So if you have a map and a compass, um, I would probably say... Let's that... take away the map. Let's just say you're navigating, in a sense, by land-dead reckoning. You're looking at, at uh -huh. land features. Let's talk about a pre-map yeah, idea. So that would be the jungle then. Because there's there's more to look at. There's more things, more reference points. It may right. be confusing. You may have a jumble of information, mm -hmm. uh, and and you may have information overload, so to speak. But yeah, there there's there are more reference points. Whereas if you're out in a complete desert, as a large part of Central Australia and the Northern Territory is, it becomes very very odd and very confusing, and psychologically you feel swallowed up. I mean, I was out in the Simpson Desert once, and I thought, you know, I really don't have any reason to panic here. I've, I've got plenty of water. Uh, I've got satellite communication if I needed it. Uh, people know where I am. Um, and I, I'm not that far from compatriots. This was a kind of survival training thing. And, uh, and I willingly was there. You know, I wasn't stranded there, in other words. But it was this sense of, and I've only felt this a couple of times, uh, it was like around uh, the islands around Tonga, where you feel like the horizon is above you. Mm, you feel mm -hmm, sort of like you're mm -hmm. sinking in, and there's no waves. I'm not talking about any bad weather or anything like this, but you feel like you're being absorbed into the land, and it's a very alien experience. Yeah. So... The people who were able to deal with that psychologically, I mean, that's just an enormous achievement unto itself. But then to actually be able to truly navigate, I mean, you have to be extremely aware of boundaries in a nuanced, subtlety sense that is just far beyond uh, Western suburban powers. You know, we, we just story. can't really relate to that. Yeah, the story that you told reminds me of driving north from El Paso to Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico, and you drive through um, a lot of small 
desert towns with maybe, you know, a diner and three trailers. And then you get to a certain point where it's just these salt flats, you know, and you're driving for maybe 50 miles with nothing but just white sand all around you. And there is a real sense of anxiety that <laughs> that overcomes the modern human when surrounded by that kind of thing, because you think to yourself, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And we largely don't feel like we're in the middle of nowhere anymore. But I think that earlier peoples would have probably not thought of it as the middle of nowhere. It's simply a different place. You know, this is the great, you know, the, the great white belly of the dragon or something to that effect, right? They'd storify it. They'd, you know, turn it into a myth. And they would know, okay, we walk along this for three days. We sing this song. And when the song's over, we'll be, uh, we'll be at the Bat Cave so to speak, <laughs> right? Well, you know, that goes back to uh, one of Sheldrake's uh, 10 dogmas of, of contemporary science. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, this idea that the, that the universe is unconscious. And uh, for listeners, uh, if you know the, the writer Dean Radin, or Radin, R-A-D-I-N. Yep. One of my favorites. His book, his book, Real Magic, is a must-read for everybody I'll absolutely put that link in the show notes yeah and and the conscious civilization um you know i mean i i can hear terence mckenna just rolling over in in the 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 heaven that that i know that he's in when he anyone would suggest that that the universe is is unconscious because we we just simply know that that's not true on a on a, an intuitive level and um another one of our heroes william james talks about this in very simple workmanlike terms that anyone can understand, that at a basic level, the the universe has a psychological aspect to it, which we simply tune into. I don't accept at all that we're projecting that onto the universe. No. I think it's no. just the other way around. And this is part of the habit. This is part of the communalization of the human mind into adaptation to the world. And our memories and our psychology fundamentally exist outside us, and and we internalize them over time, which has a that lot. That makes a of, lot more sense to me. It makes total sense, and it has a lot of implications. You know, it has a ton of implications. Real quick, I think that the last three will because I want to get back to where we're at here with memory. So let's put a pin in this and go back to perhaps the implications of memory not being local. I just want to blast through these last three dogmas real quick. Okay. Is that okay with you? Yes, absolutely. I think we want to definitely make sure people are around that because Sheldrake's explanation is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number eight, mind is inside your head. Now, as soon as I heard that, I was reminded of the great Terence McKenna quote, it's all inside your head, you just have no idea how big your head is. Um, number nine, psychic phenomena are impossible. Now, if you read the work of Dr. Russell Targ, or like you mentioned very astutely, Dr. Dean Radin, um, there is more evidence for psychic phenomena being real. How is this put? Oh, Gordon always puts this so well from Rune Soup. Um, psychic there's more evidence for psychic phenomena than there is that uh, aspirin is good for blood pressure, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, number 10, 
mechanistic medicine is the only kind that works. And we could, we could probably do a whole show about, about medicine. Um, but I just wanted to get those, those last three out of the way and then return back to this idea that we put a pin in about uh, memory and what it, what it could possibly mean that uh, both that memory is not stored in your brain and that the mind is not necessarily inside your head. There's implications there for what death actually means, um, what this particular life that we are existing in right now, what that particularly means. Uh, Continuation is an interesting theme for me. And we don't have to go down that path if you don't want to, but it's just sitting there glaring at me, so I thought I'd bring that up. I I think that's absolutely important. And I I, I think that just just to uh, touch on the medicine idea, I I think we do need to... uh, to devote an episode to some of the great limitations of of Western medicine and the mechanistic idea and the notion that we are somehow specimens of of humanity rather than uh, individuals. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a real problem with that um, in terms of very physical medicine, but certainly in terms of psychology and mental health, which we're both very concerned about. It also brings to mind... Uh, questions about uh, the placebo effect, positive thinking, uh, some things that you know some people think are kind of airy fairy, and and yet continuously get, you yeah, know. We had a president. We had a president for four years who was a student of new thought and positive thinking, who literally positive thought his way into the presidency against all odds. Uh, whatever you thought of his presidency, right? We won't we won't touch on that here, but. Sorry, go ahead. But we just know from whether it be sports, whether it be recovery from injury, whether it be survival of, of great personal trauma. I mean, we've got so much data on this. The whole history of Holocaust survival is, is, has so much to do with, with mental attitude Yes. and how that connects to a, a deeper sense of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people, you know, I think feel strong enough in themselves that they say, well, look, we're going to talk about spirituality because we, we've earned the right to, you know. Yeah. So I think we, we've, we've definitely got to, got to put uh, to earmark that as, as a larger topic for, for early in the new year. Uh, yeah, but I, that, I, it, brings, it brings to mind Viktor Frankl, right? Totally. Yeah, Victor I, I was Frankel thinking in, of him. Yeah, in Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about how he always knew when a like he could he could predict it to the day that uh, a prisoner was going to die because it was a certain amount of time from when they kind of gave up. Like once they gave up, he could, he could time their death. But yeah, mm-hmm. we'll get more into that later. But it's it's very interesting. There's a lot of stuff. To, I mean, there there we could talk too on that about Joshua Slocum. Uh, the lone mm-hmm. sailor, he, he did eventually disappear at sea the way he, he wanted to. But his talk about the uh, a conviction of, of <coughs> absolute inner certainty of survival. So there's a lot to talk about how the... But it goes back to, you know, to, to Descartes and this very, very uh, unfortunate schism, uh, a, a good word of ours, going back to Bateson... Uh, Gregory Bateson, schismatic thinking of this binary between brain and mind and between mind and matter. 
mm. body and mind. You know, we just those be- those boundaries are very very unclear, and perhaps very very poorly drawn. Mm. And maybe our great challenge at this moment in human evolution is to redraw those boundaries from a different perspective. And I, I think that we're, we're, we're starting to draw, in the West, we're starting to draw more on female perspectives, mm-hmm. not just male. Mm-hmm. I think, I hope that before the, the true indigenous surviving people on our planet are all gone, that we anthropologically try to embrace some of their mindsets and some of the, the paradigms that they work with, because their paradigms are every bit as sophisticated as ours. Just as there's no such thing as a primitive language, there's no such thing as a primitive grammar of meaning. You know, there really isn't. Yeah, we're eventually going to have to do an episode on on Tyson Yunkaporta and his uh, Sand Talk book, which was probably my favorite read of 2020, um, because there's so much value in the different perspectives and and completely different ways of thinking that you get with um, with some of the older aboriginal leaders who are really kind of steeped in this kind of thought that is just i think so valuable but um maybe we should about... include that in in sort of reading notes to kind of sum up yeah 2020 because i i yeah. i think that is a great book I, I i think that's a really important book and it's an important inroad to uh the larger uh culture yeah. Of, of indigenous thinking around the world because it is an idea, it's a motif, it's a mode, it's a grammar that repeats, you know, for reasons. Yeah. And what I think is so interesting is that we're, you know, we're creating this line between Bruno, Sheldrake, Yunkaporta, and we're kind of beginning to, in my opinion, get on some solid footing here about what we're, what we're talking about when we talk about things like magic and enchantment and non- dominant western thinking so i think that's really important and on that note i'd like to put forward um sheldrake's allegory of the television set beautiful cool okay so this is from his essay it's a very long essay it's on his website called uh mind memory and the archetype of morphic resonance and the collective unconscious all right this is called the allegory of the television set. Now, right before this, it's about six paragraphs. I'm going to kind of skip through some of it. But um, before this, he's kind of talking about DNA being passed from person to person and heredity. And he gets into a kind of overall metaphor for what's actually going on between human beings and consciousness. Okay. Cool. Good. So, the differences and connections between these two forms of heredity become easier to understand if we consider an analogy to television. Think of the pictures on the screen as the form that we're interested in. If you didn't know how the form arose, the most obvious explanation would be that there were little people inside the set whose shadows you were seeing on the screen. It's very Plato's cave, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Children sometimes think in this manner. If you take the back off of the set, however, and look inside, you find that there are no little people. Then you might get more subtle and speculate that the little people are microscopic and are actually inside the wires of the TV set. 
But if you look at the wires through a microscope, you can't find any little people there either. You might get still more subtle and propose that the little people on the screen actually arise through, quote, complex interactions among the parts of the set which are not yet fully understood. <laughs> it's so funny because this is so kind of dripping in, in sarcasm, right? You might think this theory was proved if you chopped out a few transistors from the set, the people would disappear. If you put the transistors back, they would reappear. This might provide convincing evidence that they arose from within the set entirely on the basis of internal interaction. Okay. Skipping ahead here. Suppose that someone suggested that the pictures of the little people come from outside the set and that the set picks up the pictures as a result of invisible vibrations to which the set is attuned. This would probably sound like a very occult and mystical explanation. You might deny that anything is coming into the set. You could even prove it by weighing the set switched off and switched on. It would weigh the same. Therefore, you could conclude that nothing is coming into the set. I think that is the position of modern biology, trying to explain everything in terms of what happens inside. The more explanations for form are looked for inside, the more elusive the explanations prove to be, and the more they are ascribed to ever more subtle and complex interactions, they will always elude investigation. As I am suggesting, the forms and patterns of behavior are actually being tuned into by invisible connections arising outside the organism. The development of form is a result of both the internal organization of the organism and the interaction of the morphic fields to which it is tuned. That's pretty much it, right? That's a well, you know, sounds we, solid to me. Well, we, we, we spoke about, you know, Michael Faraday being able to explain complex, uh, or, to, you know, at least to young people, complex processes, the, the basic forces of matter in very, very clear ways with very definitive experiments that they could instantly understand. I, I think that is, that is a beautiful uh, uh, hermeneutic tool, you know, I, I really do. I think it's, it's, it's one of the clearest explanations of this idea of a, a non-local, non-internal uh, counter to the, the pure physicality of genetic uh, transmission. And it, it, it works beautifully. I love the idea of weighing the television. So that's a beautiful, you know, experimental mm -hmm. scientist uh, angle. You know, this is exactly what someone would say. Well, how can anything be entering if, if it's, you know, there's no change in the state of the television. There's no, uh, it doesn't weigh any different, you know. So right. I think that's a very, very compelling uh, explanation for his... Um, his, his core theory, and, and for people who would like to follow up uh, Sheldrake, you will find him a very, very humble and engaging speaker in videos uh, on YouTube. There are many, many out there now. The TED Talk that David's been referring to is, is interesting because it is so plain-spoken and, and friendly and, and non-heretical uh, in any kind of aggressive way. Um, it's just simply very, very clear. And he is a very compelling uh, rhetorician, um, which I enjoy just listening to him purely on that basis, although I do put a lot of stock in, in his ideas. Um, David, I have a piece here um, 
which I think is kind of a nice compliment uh, to what you've just read of, of Sheldrake's. And I think, too, you made a beautiful summary of the key points of that. Um, this is by a, a former student of mine uh, from not that long ago, um, quite a lovely young woman who um, is the victim of, or was the victim of, of a very intense tragedy. She was a very, very gifted and accomplished young classical musician. And she was involved in a horrific car accident, um, which, uh, you know, plastic surgery has been able to kind of reconfigure her, her face. Um, but there was brain damage. And um, for her, it was perhaps the ultimate loss. Uh, she literally lost everything that she knew about music and uh, is involved in a very painstaking uh, humbling and I think enormously honorable and courageous endeavor to to regain something of her great facility with music. I wonder if maybe we could close out with just a, a sh her this short piece called The Girl in the Other Room. Would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. So before we close out, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Please do email us at thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. Please make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on nocountrypod.podbean.com. Um, Chris and I would love to hear from you. We hope that you have a really great holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year. We'll, we'll be back before then, but <laughs> Merry Christmas anyway. Yeah, I second that. Thank you to all our listeners and, and particularly to people who have given us some great feedback and encouragement. It's, it's very inspiring. Uh, it's, it, you know, part of a crucial reason why we've uh, embarked on this is, is to try to build our sense of community, that, that community of knowledge that, that Novalis talked about. And we very much appreciate the attention and an engagement that, that people have put forward. It's, it's been very exciting, and we hope to come back in the new year with some, some real uh, a trajectory of excitement and engagement with, with a whole uh, new range of, of supplementary materials and support. So lots of cool things ahead. Please do be safe and careful and uh, look after each other. Uh, exactly. that's, that's really the core message in life. Um, yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, take it away, sir. Okay. This is called The Girl in the Other Room. I hear the girl playing the piano in the other room. She is playing music with my hands. I think I recall a poem by Rilke about a time when he was sick with fever as a child, watching his mother ponderously playing their piano. I believe he likened her fingers to humble men trudging through heavy snow. I believe I can remember that. But music remains inside the girl in the other room. Sometimes, as I'm falling asleep, I feel that my only way to the other room, back to music, is not even through my hands, 
but through the air somehow, as if the air will remember what my damaged brain can't seem to hear. Wow. That's intense. That's intense. To lose music, you know. But uh, we go on. We all go on. And we go on maybe because of reasons that we aren't aware of that are not always just inside ourselves. 